We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its continuing mission to explore strange new worlds. Engage the official Star Trek podcast. Hello. It is I, Jordan Hoffman, your host, and we took a little break. We had a holiday break for, uh, for, for, for Christmas, for Hanukkah, for Kwanzaa, for New Year's Eve, New Year's Day. Man, we needed a break that day. Ugh, I barely got off the couch. But now we're back, and it's a whole new year. Um, and uh, Brian, the engineer, how are you doing this day? I'm doing great. Yeah, it's good to see you again. And you're in yet another Been a long time. Yet another plaid shirt. It's good to see you. <laughs> And um, we got a great year lined up. This is a big year for Star Trek, a make or break year, because we got um, Discovery coming to us all uh, in in a few months, in about five and a half months, give or take. (coughs) The hope is that as we get closer to Discovery, we'll have more guests on the show that are intimately involved uh, in the writing, perhaps in the performing, the directing. Uh, There's rumors... I don't want to. I don't want to jinx it, but there's rumors of, uh, of of me getting to know these people pretty well, and that's all coming up down the year. But you know, it's it's we're now about six months into the into our child is six months old. Brian, this this show we started it in June of last year. We've had uh, some great guests in the past uh, from the Star Trek actors. We had uh, you know Michael Dorn was on the show, Nana Visitor, Ethan uh, Ethan uh, Phillips was on uh, was on twice. Armin Shimmerman was on twice. Um, we've had direct. We had Dean Pariseau, the director of one of the greatest Star Trek films of all time, Galaxy that was, Quest. That was one of my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're a huge Galaxy Quest fan. That was great when he was here. Adam Nimoy was on the show. Why am I telling this? I'm telling you because that was last year. This year is going to be even better. Positivity and optimism for 2017. That's what this show's all about. So thanks again for listening. And if you want to get in touch with me, just to remind you, you can contact the show and me on Facebook at facebook.com slash engage the official Star Trek podcast. That's all one word. And you can tweet at me at at Jay Hoffman, at Jay Hoffman. There was a guy um, who contacted me via Twitter and he's like, uh, you should have a you should have a Twitter for the show. And I said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm here, you know, talk to me right now. And he's like, no, 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 you need a Twitter for the show. I'm like, nobody's going to do it. I'm like, if I don't do it, who's going to do it? Brian, you're a busy man. You're not going to do I'm it. I'm a busy man. So I'm like, I'm like, I'm here right now. What do you want to ask me? And he's like, well, I don't have anything to say. I just wanted to say that you should have a Twitter <laughs> for the show. I'm like, well, you know what? Thanks a lot, pal. I appreciate it. But if you need to contact me, uh, tweet at me at at Jay Hoffman. Um, today's show, 
the first of 2017 is exciting for two reasons. Number one, we have a great guest by the name of David Mack. David Mack is a writer. Um, he's written two episodes, um, co-wrote uh, Starship Down, and um, uh, which was a DS9 episode, uh, a very cool one. Quark disarms a torpedo in that one. And co-wrote It's Only a Paper Moon, which is the Nog Vic Fontaine episode. Um, but uh, is probably better known to Trek fans, hardcore Trek fans, as one of the most established and best of the Star Trek novelists. We've had um, Dayton Ward on the show before, and uh, uh, David and Dayton have worked together closely, so uh, David will be joining us in the studio on Deck 44, excuse me, in just a moment or two. Guy's written something like 30... 35 Star Trek novels, including the Vanguard series, which is one of my favorites. I hope we get to talk to him about Vanguard and also the Destiny trilogy and is involved. Uh, he is writing um, the first uh, Discovery book. Should be out at around the same time the, f the show makes it on the air, so in May. Um, we'll be talking to him soon. This episode is going to air... Air. It's not radio. I know it's a podcast. You can listen to this 10 years from now. But in theory, if, you, if you're if you the type of person who listens to podcasts the minute they go live, I just want to let you know where I'm going to be. And Brian, I don't even know if you know what I'm about to say. I, I think I have a, an inkling. I'm going to be at jealous. sea. I'm going to be at sea <laughs> next week. I'm going on the first branded official Star Trek cruise. And I know a handful of people that listen to the show regularly are going to be on at least uh, three people that I know listened uh, contacted me when they saw my name in the program. I haven't mentioned this on the show yet because, frankly, I, I kept waiting for the other shoe to drop and be disinvited. <laughs> but I am going on the Star Trek cruise that leaves from Miami and then goes to uh, various spots in the Caribbean. Uh, it stops in, 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 in Cozumel and it stops in other nice ports. But the main attraction is six nights and six days under the stars, under the high seas, with, with all of your, not all, but with many of your favorite Star Trek alum. Mr. William Shatner will be on the ship. Um, uh, uh, Ethan Phillips will be on the ship. Marina Sirtis will be on the ship. Um, Terry Farrell will be on the ship. And uh, a number of others. And there's a lot of activities that are going on. Some of them are fairly uh, reminiscent of what happens at a typical convention. There'll be some uh, panels. I'll be moderating many of those panels. There'll be interview ops. Uh, excuse me, uh, photo ops and, and, and autograph ops. But also a lot of fun and games. Star Trek trivia, which I'll be hosting. Um, they're doing like a Star Trek family feud where cast of DS9 will be versus the cast oh, of TNG. Oh, that sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> It's going to be wild. There's going to be a production of uh, the play Love Letters between Terry Farrell and Marina Sirtis. And uh, William Shatner is going to do his one-man show. Um, uh, uh, Joe Piscopo is going to be there doing comedy. You know, he was on one episode of TNG. He taught Data how to laugh. I don't, I don't remember that one, actually. It's an early, it's the, the Outrageous Acuna. I think it's uh, season two. <coughs> Ugh, I'm just thinking about it. It's making me cough. <laughs> I hope I'm not sick on the cruise. So that's what's going on. And we're going to record an episode of this podcast with a lesser non-Brian engineer is going to be the guy working it. Uh, we'll do a live uh, podcast uh, that's going to be recorded from the ship. I, you know who my guest is going to be? One of the great Star Trek guests. 
goes by the name of TBD, to be determined. <laughs> we haven't figured it out yet, but somebody. I'm, I'm, it'll, I'm, I don't know. We'll, we'll worry about it when we're on the boat. Um, I'm thinking maybe I'll ask Terry Farrell to do it because um, I've gotten to know her a little bit, and she hasn't been on the show. You know, a lot of the other people have already, uh, but Terry's never been on the show, so maybe uh, maybe she would agree, you know. Um, we'll see. It'll be somebody fun. So we'll be hearing that hearing that episode soon. So that's where I'll be next week on the Star Trek cruise. Um, and then the week after that, um, I mean, in case you want to keep up with my calendar, I'm going to be um, at the Sundance Film Festival for my other job, which is writing movie reviews. So... Um, you know, we're going to be banking some stuff today. So that's the news with that. So cool. So another year, 2017. Let's hear it. Let's get energized. Energize. And uh, in a moment, we're going to speak to our friend David Mack, and then we'll uh, see how that goes. Real quick, got to interrupt the show. Have you heard about Blue Apron? Holy smokes, Blue Apron is the best. Let me tell you, it's halfway between ordering out and cooking for yourself. You don't have all the time and the patience to go shopping, to get all the ingredients, um, but you don't want to order out all the time. It's, it's not healthy. It's too expensive. The portions are too big. Blue Apron is perfect. You get all the ingredients directly to you, just the right amount. It's not. There's no waste involved. You need one, you know one russet potato, not six. And and uh, you know there's the, you don't have to throw anything out. It gives you the perfect um, recipe. It doesn't take a lot of time. And bada bing, you're done. It's uh, it's less than ten bucks a meal. They say when you average it all together. And, you know, once you're in with the club, you get to kind of customize what you want. So, you know, don't take it from me, because what the hell do I know? Make up your own decision. You got to check it out, and you can get, uh, take a look at this week's menu and get your first three meals for free. You go, with free shipping, uh, you go to blueapron.com slash engage, and you get a special deal. Tell them I sent you. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash engage. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Engage, Engage. the official Star Trek podcast. Energize. And we're back. Oh, yes. This is the first episode of the new year of Engage, and we have our first guest. He's right outside the door. Hold on. I think, yeah, I heard him. And where's the door button? Like I said, I've been away all... all. Coming back from vacation, we're going to beam him in. Yes! Do you like the sound effects? It's a hell of a sensation. <laughs> You've been beamed, David Mack. You've been beamed. Congratulations. Great. I've had my original form destroyed, and I've been reconstituted in this chair as a this, perfect duplicate of the guy who used to write books. This is the conversation, is do you die when you get beamed? And, and Mike Okuda, whom I'm sure you've met over the years. Once or twice. He said yes. Yeah. I, I mean, scientifically, you have to be destroyed yeah. to be transported. And that's really one of the things that always troubled me about that technology. Yeah, well, I didn't, don't, I never came up in the original series, but in the first novel, James Blish's Spock Must Die, which mm -hmm. I'm sure as, as a, you um, didn't even really introduce you yet, but I'm sure you've read, uh, it comes up in that, that uh, Bones is hypothesizing 
that you that you uh, he's kind of says it but they don't really come down firmly one way or the other. They sort of like blow it, brush it off as just sort of like, ah, yeah, you die, and then you. you I think I touched on that philosophical conundrum or scientific conundrum in one of my books through really? the years. In one of my thirty-plus novels for Star Trek, <laughs> I'm, I believe I did have a bit from a character's point of view about why they don't like being transported, and yeah. they were constantly wondering every time they rematerialize. Am I the real me? Am I just a copy? Which character was this? I can't remember. Oh, is it the real you? Then is the question. If you uh-huh. remember, well, I mean, you just be me, and maybe I don't. <laughs> maybe the Engram that had that memory got destroyed right. in the transport process. <laughs> but uh, I, I would have to look that up. And since I'm not at my computer, no. I have no means of doing. You could so. not consult Memory Alpha right now. But I'm pretty uh, sure that sequence is in one of my books. Oh, that's awesome! That's awesome. Yeah, it's like the I try to explain. It's like the Prestige, the end of the Prestige. Oh yeah, yeah. Is, is Hugh Jackman is beaming himself into that tank of are you the man who goes into the box or the man who comes out the other side yeah and that's the question is who is transported the original or the copy is the copy left behind and the original moved or is is the original stay in place drop through the trap door and the copy reappears elsewhere there's no way to know there's no way to know and once you do it maybe if it's not the right one the person who goes through would never want to admit it that they made a mistake. You know, it's funny that you bring up The Prestige. My wife always laughs at me when that subject comes up, that movie, because the first time we saw it, I was rooting for the wrong guy. I was rooting <laughs> for Hugh Jackman. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, she attributed to the fact that she says I have a man crush on Hugh Jackman. Who doesn't? That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. But the thing is, I empathize with this character at the beginning of the movie because it's his wife who dies yeah. because of the rope mistake. And Borden seems completely unaffected or at the very least disengaged from the question of which knot did he tie and it's not till the end of the movie and you learn the twist that you realize how the accident happened and why it happened but as a result through my entire first viewing of the movie i was rooting for hugh jackman right up to the very end and was disappointed when he died because i had sort of gotten so emotionally invested in his story and his pain and his character that the moment where he should have lost me yeah the point where he says it's not about the trick anymore you know it's, or it's not about my wife it's about the trick you know when he when he loses it on scarlett yeah, johansson yeah. that's the moment you're supposed to realize he's gone off the deep end into obsession right, right. he's lost it and when he commits suicide close to a hundred times <laughs> for this one petty act of revenge on borden <laughs> right. you're supposed to realize this is not a mentally no. well man there is no winner and that borden for all of his faults is actually the better guy you should have been right. rooting for but you watching it i i the first time through <laughs> i rooted for jackman i couldn't <laughs> believe that you know borden actually won it wasn't until i had a second and third viewing of the yeah. movie that i realized yeah i was rooting for the wrong guy <laughs> i was rooting for the devil well, that was the trick you got that was the trick rooting for the wrong person okay so 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 david mack is with me he is uh, truly one of the great men of modern Star Trek. I want to say that. Um, wow, way I, to oversell it. No, I'm being 100% serious because for those of us that are hardcore fans, um, you know, Star Trek is, we're thinking about Star Trek all the time and there are the movies and the shows, but uh, the novels uh, are, are, you know, are part of it. And it, you have not only worked on uh, expanding characters that we know and love and taking them beyond uh, the last episodes of Voyager, DS9, etc., mm-hmm. uh, have created characters that are as exciting as the characters we know. 
That's very I'm, flattering. I'm Thank speaking you. specifically about the Vanguard series. Ah, yes, my favorite. It is your favorite. I was going to ask you if it was. It's my creative baby. Yeah. I, uh, I developed that, the series Bible, with Marco Palmieri, the editor. He had the initial idea for Vanguard. Yeah. And he brought me aboard to write the series Bible and the first novel. The original idea for the series was to have it be a multi-author series so that it could change author, change tone, change yeah. style, book to book, in a way similar to what he had done for the Deep Space Nine post-finale novels. Yeah. But very quickly, a dynamic emerged on the Vanguard series. I had set it up in such a way that Dayton Ward and Kevin Delmore were going to be the only logical choices to write book two based on the story I set up. Mm-hmm. They wrote book two, and then I had really loved what I saw them do in book two, and I voiced to Marco that I wanted to come back for book three. So I came back and did book three, and that got their juices going, and they petitioned him for book four. And Marco realized that it was an opportunity to set up a dynamic that you don't see very often. You ping-pong back between the two. The ping-pong back and forth between an author duo of Ward and Dilmore and then me on the other side. You see a lot of author collaborations where all the authors work together on each book, but it's very rare to see an author collaboration where you ping-pong back and forth on alternating books in a series, almost in a game of one-upmanship. Right, right. And that was what we developed on Vanguard. And, and all the books ended with, like, a great cliffhanger, and it's like, how? how right right up to, like, the, maybe, the, I would say the fourth book, uh, fifth book, had a cliffhanger as well. After the fifth book, we realized, okay, we're closing in on the end game. We told CBS and Simon and Schuster that we wanted to end the series on our terms and bring the narrative to a satisfying mm-hmm. uh, conclusion. They said, is there any way you can stretch it out, continue it? Because they really loved it, and they thought that creatively it was a very successful in Denver. Uh, wow, I mispronounced that. In Denver. De- no, it was successful in Denver. They were. Uh, it was very successful in go Denver. Go to a Denver bookshop. You couldn't find a Vanguard. It, it was were, everywhere. Yeah. So uh, they wanted us to try and stretch it out a little bit more. And the best we could do on that front, we said, well, we can do an anthology of novellas, like four uh, novellas that together will add up to about a novel-length paperback publication. What was the name of that? It was... um, Declassified. Right. Those were really cool. Yeah, we had a lot of fun. They were prequels. Three three prequels, and then one that goes forward from book five, and that was my story, The Stars Look Down. And what was really cool about that is we got to have Marco Palmieri come back to write one of the stories. Marco is, by trade, an editor. That's what he does most of the time. He hasn't done much in the way of original fiction writing. But as one of the co-creators of the series, one of the visionaries who brought it to life, we felt that the anthology would not be complete without a contribution from Marco. And he knocked it out of the park, his story about... Uh, a young Captain Diego Reyes on the Dauntless and how he formed his relationship, uh, his friendship with Captain Hallie Gannon when she was his XO, uh, plus great insight into the Arcanites and the Klingons and, you know, that sort of pre-TOS era of Star Trek history. Just a great story. Yeah. Uh, so we did Declassified and then we did the final two books uh, where we coordinated the two-part story. We plotted it all out together, the three of us, and then Dayton and Kevin executed the first part, and then I wrote the finale. Yeah. And there was like a little Coda ebook flying around in there, also. Yeah, right? yeah. And that was written by Dayton yeah. uh, for the ebook. A only little line. cherry, uh, a little cherry on top. Yeah, yeah. So, so altogether, it, it and it started. It's about a decade old, right? It was two thousand six. Yeah, it, it premiered in two thousand five. Two thousand five. Okay. And it uh, concluded in two thousand twelve. I yeah. believe. So still relatively new. And if just to to give the elevator pitch, if you haven't read these. 
They're so much fun. And the basic shtick is it's Deep Space Nine set in TOS era. Which is exactly what makes us want to punch people whenever they say that. <laughs> that was exactly the tagline we did not use for the series. Well, I did, I'm saying to, to explain it to somebody, it's 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 set at a space station. Hey, it's it's it is set it's primarily set a on a space station, station, but it also has multiple starships. Well, DS9 has has the, the Defiant, too. I mean, come on. Well, the thing is, we were trying to go for a completely different paradigm in Star Trek, where even on Deep Space Nine, you had the paradigm of commander, first officer, science officer, medical officer, you know, your usual ensemble. Right. We decided specifically to shake it up with a commodore who has sector command, multiple captains, but then some of our principal characters are civilians. Right. We have, you know, uh we have the reporter Tim Pennington. Right. We have the drunkard uh soldier of fortune Cervantes. I wanted, I wanted to get to all these people. Hold on a second. But but uh I do want to defend myself and say to somebody that you have 30 seconds to. It's like, "Hey, you like Deep Space Nine, you like all these interesting and unique characters and a broad palette of individuals in a spot where there's a lot of danger, but you And a wish, lot of moral complexity. And a lot of moral complexity. Because, yeah, Diego Reyes does some does some stuff. You know, hey, Everybody some, does. Tuprin. Look at what Tuprin I, 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 does. I, 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 I'm getting to Tuprin. But, but imagine if all of that was happening in the TOS era. That is unique. And that I say to you is an okay way to define it to somebody when you have 10 seconds to do it i'm just going to say that right on page one of the series bible it says this is not just deep space nine for the tos era well i didn't read that it's available on my website oh my for god. years oh my god oh, way to do your homework oh, i nice. you know I, nice. I looked at a lot of your i looked at a lot of the pictures on the website but you looked at the pictures yeah all the pretty pictures <laughs> oh but the words oh too many words boring words all right all right words. fair enough i i i i concede that perhaps that's not your favorite phrase to hear about what you just referred to as your creative baby. I understand. It's an elevator pitch. I get it. All right. If it was an escalator, we would have more time. I'd give the A little more time. For yeah. the elevator pitch. But you, you did bring up some of these great characters. And I wanted to mention, I was just thinking about this, uh, you know, who, who were my favorites. And really, one of the most interesting characters is Tuprin. Mm -hmm. She is fascinating. She is, um, what was her official function? She right. was the liaison with Starfleet Intelligence. Okay. So, and she is a uh, Vulcan. She's a Vulcan. And. About 70 some odd years old. She has an inner turmoil that we don't mm -hmm. learn about at first. It's in, we learn about it actually in the first book. It, but not in the, you know, page Not, not right yeah. at the, uh, right, it happens yeah. about halfway through the book. You get the first taste of this. Uh, and the funny thing is, that was actually not in the series Bible. That was a flash of inspiration that came to me as I was writing the manuscript. Mm. I was just writing a scene. In fact, I remember I was writing a scene on Christmas night in the basement of my parents' old house <laughs> where I grew up. Uh, I was working on my laptop late at night after yeah. everyone else had gone to bed, and I was working on this scene. And I just suddenly hit upon this notion of a Vulcan who has somebody else's katra stuck in their head. Yeah. And I devised this whole backstory for Tuprin where because she is uh, a gay woman, she was betrothed as a child into one of these arranged Vulcan marriages before her parents realized her orientation. Mm. Then you get to Ponfar and the whole marriage ritual. She petitions to be released from the ritual, but her fiancé, her betrothed, is already 
in the uh, the fires of the plateau. The, he's already he's Kuna already Kalafi, is that what it's referred the to? The Kuna Kalafi is the uh, marriage or challenge. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, the, the basically you have the the marriage ritual, and then you have the the blood fever, the plateau. Right, right, right. Okay. Uh, the her fiance Sten was already in the blood fever, and therefore had reverted to this atavistic form. He would not release her from the marriage right. uh, vow. So the only way to... Almost not by choice, though. It's like... It, well, it, at that point, he was committed. He yeah. he was already in the fever. It was this or nothing. Right, right, So she realizes the only way out of this, the only way to free him from the blood fever and her from the marriage bond is to issue a kunat kalafi to dissolve the marriage. And so she has to basically fight him to the death. Uh, and then the course of doing so as she is snuffing out, you know, breaking his neck and taking the last moment of life yeah. because they're in physical contact in a moment of like just a, uh, you know, spite, he thrusts what remains of his Katra violently into her psyche and there it remains. And they try everything for decades to right. get rid of it. And so she's haunted by the plateau, you know, sort of atavistic, Katra, you know, the, the, this twisted Katra of her dead fiance lives on in her head, warping her moral center and sort of giving her this very dark edge, this inner uh, turmoil, this terrible secret that she struggles to contain. Yeah. But it makes her a lot more volatile and it impairs her logic sometimes. Yeah, it's the most whacked out thing. It's one of the top five most whacked out things in the totality of Star Trek, I think. It's, it's a pretty gonzo take on a Vulcan. <laughs> she was, yeah. I mean, yeah, she's definitely one of my top two favorite oh, characters so cool. in the Vanguard series and that I've ever written. Although I did not invent the character, I wrote most of the revelations about the character. The character was first created, uh, I believe, in a Deep Space Nine novel that depicted her death uh, sometime in the... 24th century, early 24th century. Mm. Um, and it was connected to the character of Prin uh, Tenmei and Elias Vaughn. You learn that she was the namesake, you know, that Prin was named in honor of Tiprin. Mm. Um, so the, but you didn't really learn much about her in that first appearance. So most of what is known about Tiprin as a character was invented by me for Vanguard. And then my other favorite Vanguard character, and again, just one of my all-time favorite characters I've ever put on paper is Cervantes Quinn, yeah. who is a former mercenary, soldier of fortune, down on his luck, drunkard, loser, <laughs> just a total dumpster fire of a human being. Yeah. And he tries to walk this path to redemption, and he almost gets there. He almost has it all, then he loses it all, and goes right back down into the pit where yeah. he started from. And it's a character that you never see in Star Trek, and certainly not in the TOS era. Not and with that level of being broken and no, violent. And, 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 but also being um, sympathetic. I mean, you see, you know, like you see the Harry Muds or the, the Cyrano Joneses or something like that. And they're but, treated like a joke. Yes, exactly. And like Cyrano Jones, is, he is. He's a goofball. He's got tribbles everywhere. But Cervantes Quinn is not. He's like, you, you, you love the guy, and you want him to do well, and sometimes he does, and he forms alliances with the other people. He's and got a conscience, a strange you know, sort of moral code that yeah. he lives by. He does incredibly selfish, stupid things. On the other hand, he doesn't tend to act out of malice. 
he acts more out of desperation yeah. uh, than anything else. And then in the first book, by the end of the first book, he realizes that he's been used by Tiprin as a patsy to ruin the life and career of reporter Tim Pennington. Yeah. And although he can't confess directly to Pennington what he has done or the role that he has played in Pennington's ruination, he makes a silent vow to himself, I'm going to help this guy fix his life no matter what it takes. And these two wind up as an unlikely pair of best friends, yeah. uh, you know, a, a Felix and Oscar pair, getting into shenanigans and stupidity. Yeah. Uh, and well, Pennington likes to drink also, if I'm not mistaken. Pennington right? doesn't mind a drink, he, yeah. but he's not a disastrous alcoholic quite the way that uh quinn is right right quinn quinn levels it up to an art form <laughs> i mean the other thing quinn is particularly good at and you see this in book one is taking a beating yeah. he gets his ass beat in in a way that you rarely see in star trek like to the point where after getting uh i mean just punched and kicked and, and beaten bones broken left in a bloody mess on the deck he basically crawls back through the corridors of uh, vanguard to try and find his way back to a bar that's still open leaving <laughs> a blood trail as he goes and all he wants is to just wash down the pain with some tequila <laughs> and he's leaving blood everywhere he goes and everything he touches now there's something else that that that's in the vanguard series with uh to prin which is her relationship with well, it's very complex. At first, you think it's a human, mm -hmm. but it turns out to be a double agent Klingon, uh, Klingon. in human guise, very in the spirit of Arn Darvin from Trouble with Tribbles. Yeah, Lurkal is her Lurkal is her Klingon name, and she poses as Anna Sandejo, right? Uh, a, basically, a member of the Federation diplomatic team stationed on Vanguard. Right. When you first encounter them. Uh, I present the scene at first to make you think that it's a fight scene, that in fact that uh, Tiprin has identified Anna as a spy, which is revealed to the reader earlier in the book, and it looks as though she's about to thrash and beat the hell out of her, and it turns out it's just violent foreplay, because you've got this incredibly repressed Vulcan with this atavistic Katra, uh, you know, fueling her brain, right, right. and then you've got a Klingon who has relatively violent sexual tendencies as well. Sure, sure. And you put but them. But she's got to keep that under wraps. She's, she's got to keep that under wraps. Yeah. But they have, uh, they have a very hot relationship. Well, this is what I wanted to come to because um, in Star Trek, which uh, you know certainly always had very beautiful people on the screen, and in the other tie-in fiction, uh, there is not much eroticism in the work and i'm being sincere this is this yeah they tend to shy away from it yeah these scenes they are they're certainly not unduly coarse they're not pornographic they're not pornographic they're not coarse they're not descriptive in a graphic but way but they are uh it's it is erotic they have a they have a love affair that is tender and true and when they're together uh you know it's a little steamy and I'm very just, steamy. Some parts in uh, book three, uh, you know, definitely, uh, you know, missed the the windows, missed the viewports, if you will. <laughs> uh, now, I think that's the only. It's certain. I'm, listen, I have not read uh, all Star Trek books. I mean, there's zillions of them, but in the ones that I've read, I think your this relationship is the only steamy stuff that you'll find out there. There might be one other exception in my work that I know of, and that is. Uh, in the book Zero Sum Game, which was part of the Type Impact miniseries, mm -hmm. uh, I kind of went into this territory with Bashir and Serena Douglas when I reignited their relationship mm. and put them back together. That basically, I wanted to show the consummation of their relationship uh, 
because I felt it was very important to see that this was not just a fling, but that this was a deep physical, emotional, and spiritual connection between the two of them. Mm. When 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 uh, you were submit, did you get any sort of like feedback from from your editors? Like, eh, tone this down a little bit, no. reel it in a little bit, or no, no, they uh, they both got a big thumbs up, <laughs> greenlit, no changes. Awesome. Uh, I mean, I was surprised that the stuff with Lercall and Tuprin, most of it. In fact, almost all of it sailed through without any uh, major tweaks of, of any kind. Um, I remember I did a podcast with some folks a few years back where we were talking about the effect of music as an inspiration on Vanguard. Mm. And uh, one of the things I had used as an example of the difference in psychology between Tuprin and their call, uh, Tuprin's entire psychology was summed up by the song Number One Crush by Garbage. <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with the song, but it's uh, it's set up, you know, to sort of sound like, you know, the, the pledges of love and devotion. But as the song goes along, they become darker, more sinister, more stalkery, more violent, obsessive. It's basically a song about obsessive, obsessive, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, fixation on another person. And then for the opposite side of it, for Lercal's point of view on the relationship, uh, I chose What Am I to You by Nora Jones, which is this very sweet, very sincere country love ballad. Uh, and basically what was interesting is that in this relationship between the Vulcan character Tuprin and the Klingon character Lacall, the one whose motives are most pure, the one whose love is most pure, mm. is the Klingon. Yeah. Uh, and in, then, you know, spoiler alert, uh, by the end of the book, when Lacall is killed... And basically, Dupre has to see it happen. Yeah. She realizes that she's lost. That the only how did I put it in the book? The only honest thing in her entire life was a woman with two faces and two names. Mm. Um, and there's a recurring line between the two of them where their call is trying to get Dupre to be honest and mm. legit about their relationship, and she's trying to express to her how she feels about her. And she says, you know, I burn for you and I know that you burn for me. And then in the end, Lercal is killed in a bombing incident. And as Tuprin is watching the starship basically burn and break apart right. in the hangar bay of, uh, of Starbase Vanguard, she flashes back to that line, she burns for me. Yeah. And it destroys her. And that's the, the last straw, as you would say. Uh, that's the thing that psychologically shatters Tuprin. Yeah. And then she goes through a whole... Whole redemption. Yeah. But the thing is, that's the theme of the whole Vanguard series. It's all about redemption. The entire series... Start, and a lot of people were sort of thrown by the first book with these deeply flawed uh, characters on the Starfleet side as well as the civilian side. They were all doing these reprehensible things, making bad decisions, morally questionable decisions, operating from the shadows. And a lot of people said, well, this feels more like Battlestar Galactica than like Star Trek. Yeah, yeah. And in a way that was true. I was a big fan of the reimagined Battlestar. And also Battle the, Star. there's the urgency of the um, which we haven't even talked about but the urgency of the, the, the thing that's happening. The Shaddai mystery right, and the and it's also a time there's of There's a looming, there's a ticking clock throughout there's all There's a ticking right? clock. There's essentially a mystery that has to be solved. There's a an, an interstellar race between three major powers to try and, and eventually four major powers to try and uh, unearth and control this alien technology. So there's a sense of political urgency. It's a very volatile time militarily and politically in the Star Trek universe. Um, but then what happens is you've got these Starfleet characters who have to do all these reprehensible things. And to one degree or another, if you look at the first book, it's all about them being set up to fail. 
Uh, Reyes has to start going down the dark side. Pennington sort of cheats. Uh, you know, he's been cheating on his wife. He's professionally really great at his job, mm. but he's cheating on his wife. He's having an affair with a Starfleet officer. That officer is killed in the middle of the book. So he's going down this grief spiral. But he's trying to hide it because he can't openly grieve for his mistress. And at one point, he winds up, you know, having to deal with, you know, her uh, her widowed, widowed husband. He's dealing with his wife. His infidelity comes to life, uh, and his marriage falls apart. And she basically takes everything he owns. Meanwhile, to help cover up the military incident that has gone hideously wrong, to Prin sets him up in sort of a Dan Rather esque, uh, you know. Basically, uh, she sabotages him. She torpedoes him. She feeds him what looks like good intel, but it finally gets exposed as a fraud, uh, and she basically ruins his career, his professional reputation. And it's as if he has, you know, invited karmic disaster with his affair. Suddenly, everything is gone. In the course of book one, he's lost his reputation, his job, his marriage, everything he owns, and all he has left is one new friend, this drunk. sitting next to him on the bleachers. Um, and then you've got Tiprin, who is also doing some very dark things, having a very twisted relationship with someone who is supposed to be an intelligence asset working for her, um, et cetera, et cetera. And all the characters sort of follow this paradigm with maybe the exception of Ming Zhang, who represents the conscience of, sure. the, uh, of, yeah. the, of the saga. The entire saga going forward from there is about these characters having to hit rock bottom, most of them in book three, and then having hit rock bottom, having to come back and redeem themselves. For Reyes, it's about, you know, once he hits rock bottom at the and gets arrested at the end of book three and then vanishes in book four or whatever, for him, it's about trying to build a new piece. Uh, trying to build that piece as a civilian that he could not build as a Starfleet officer. For Pennington, it's about getting his reputation back, uh, but it's also about learning to forgive Tuprin, who did this to him. For Tuprin, it's about, A, purging this uh, evil Katra from her head by any means necessary, and then atoning for, what is at this point, five decades worth of terrible life choices and like at the end of book five one one of the things or maybe it's book eight i can't remember it's either at the very end of the series or maybe when she starts down the journey she realizes the journey to redemption and atonement for her will never end it'll never be complete but that's not the point Mm. the point is she has to now walk this journey and you know she basically realizes i will never be done yeah. That's not the point. It's it's rich stuff. It's really it's uh it's it's terrific. If if uh you know the 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 new Star Trek television show Discovery, if it's an eighth as rich and deep as as the Vanguard series, we're all in for uh for a good treat. But one character that did not come up um was my is one of my is uh Jetanine. Jetanian. Jetanian. I didn't know that's how it was pronounced. Jetanian. Jetanine. Jetanian. Yeah. Okay. Jetanian. Spelled the same, but okay. I never knew how his name In was In the house, we always pronounced it Jetanian. <laughs> he is a Rigelian... Chalon. Chalon. Basically a big walking turtle. Yeah, he's a big turtle. He's a big and turtle. And he drinks disgusting smelling soup, and he's a diplomat. He's a diplomat. We modeled but, him on the Jed Bartlett character from the West Wing. Awesome. He always has but these remarkable, highfalutin speeches with 50 cent words. Yeah, he's so cool. He'll never say in five words what he can say in 50. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but he, what's great is he's supposed to be a, a, a great... Uh, 
negotiator and a peacemaker, but he has everything to, he does goes wrong. Everything he does goes wrong, and he sits and slurps f- f- foul-smelling fish soup, and everybody's grossed out, and they don't want to be around him, even though he's the guy who's supposed to bring peace to the world. And so. what's hilarious too is we got a a great nod into the movie Star Trek Five. In that, three, that that, that, that much maligned uh, film. Uh, we actually have them. He and his Klingon counterpart. Uh, in a very waiting for Godot subplot through book five are sitting basically in like the equivalent of lawn chairs on this plateau waiting for their Romulan counterpart to arrive so they can get this thing rolling and they wait and they wait and they wait and somewhere around like the third or fourth time we get to them they see a ship come down and it breaks through the cloud cover this shining thing and it comes toward them and it hovers just off of the plateau and the bottom doors open up and light comes out and they're waiting and waiting and the ship dumps a massive load of garbage onto the planet <laughs> and then closes its doors and flies away. And the Klingon just says something, how utterly apropos. <laughs> and there's just nowhere left to go. And Jutanian just gets up and goes back to his trailer and goes to bed for the night. Yeah, no, it's very funny stuff. Featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Engage, Engage. the official Star Trek podcast. Energize. You know, we were you mentioned before about music and the characters. Uh, Cervantes Quinn. Obviously uh, uh, inspired, inspired by, by Don Miguel uh, Cervantes. Uh, yeah, I didn't even know. I don't know Cervantes' first name. I guess it's Don Miguel. Yeah, who wrote, of course, uh, Don Quixote. Don Quixote de la Mancha. And um, Don Quixote's horse. Rocinante. Rocinante, the, 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 the sort of Broken down, down old nag. Old nag with this slumping along with uh, uh, on their dopey adventures. And Rocinante, that's how we named Quinship. Quinship. But I know something about you, David Mack. I know that you are a an obsessive of the great Canadian power trio Rush. Of course I am. The as, Holy Triumvirate. As are many Star Trek fans. There is a great connection. Including Dayton Ward and Kevin Delmore, my co-writers on the Vanguard series. So when you name the ship Rasinante, It was y- also a reference to Cygnus X1 <laughs> Book 1 yes. off of the uh, Farewell to Kings LP. <sighs> and uh, there are many, many references to Rush throughout all of my work, but especially the Vanguard series. Uh, but in keeping with the Don Quixote uh, sort of allegory that we did for Quinn, even when Quinn loses his first ship, when the Rocinante is destroyed, and he acquires a second ship that he steals from his longtime rival, Zet, uh, he names that ship Dulcinea, which, of course, is right. the name of yeah, the, the Don Quixote's yeah. uh, lady. The shepherd it, girl who has actually... Who he, he thinks of as right. his lady patron or whatever. Yeah. So... But yeah, there are rush references. There are things like uh, Lamneth Starport. Um, we have things in there called Syrinx. I think. Uh, Is there a Syrinx reference in there? I think we have a ship called Syrinx, oh maybe. My God. Or we call something Syrinx class. Uh, and, d- and there's also Battlestar Galactica references. I think in book three, some of the intelligence officers are named after producers like Mark Verheiden uh, mm. and some of the others on the. Uh, sci-fi channel Battlestar Galactica series there's an Admiral McCreary who is named for Bear McCreary the the music composer uh, whose work was inspirational to me while I was working on all of this so but yeah Rush references run through all of my work including novel titles the Vanguard novella The Stars Look Down 
the stars look down is a song title mm. off of Vapor Trails. Yeah, uh, Dayton, I think, lifted uh, most of his book titles from Rush song titles. <laughs> uh, Headlong Flight being just the uh, most recent of them. What is your favorite Rush album? Hard to say. Uh, I mean, I love so many of them for different reasons, but I think for me, the quintessential Rush album is probably Permanent Waves. You know, that's a really, really, really good choice because 2112 is not the best Rush album because side two of 2112 it has some weak cuts. Yeah, it has some weak cuts. Isn't that uh, on the train to Bangkok? Isn't that on? Uh, train to Bangkok. That's not uh, the greatest uh, song. Passage to Bangkok. Passage, yeah. Passage to Bangkok. Um, I love that song, actually. It's fine. Oh, there's but a great, not... but the guitar riff, especially in the live version off of Exit Stage Left, yeah. the power guitar riff near the end of Passage to Bangkok, that's just classic stuff. I, I would say 2112 is their best concept work. well i don't well, i don't know about song. that well you don't think 2112 is their best song no well, well the thing is 2112 as a single work as a concept album is brilliant to a degree but i think that if you look at their last album clockwork angels where the entire album oh, is man. a concept album i think that you'll see that uh, they actually revisited an earlier concept work um the fountain of Lamneth, yeah off of caress of Caressa steel, steel yeah. and You'll find many thematic similarities in terms of the story content and presentation between Fountain of Lamneth and uh, Clockwork Angels. But Clockwork Angels is far more sophisticated, really? far more in-depth. And, I mean, I think it's all worth it on Clockwork Angels um, for the ending song, The Garden, which brings tears to my eyes. I gotta which is really I barely, just a, I barely listened to it. It's a beautiful... I'm, I'm a Fairweather fan when it comes to Rush. There's a certain point... Then you are a rarity. Most people either can't stand the band or they are devoted fanatics. I, I'm devoted up. You know the this the the newer stuff. Like once you get past, like roll the bones. I just sort of not didn't pay as much attention. I can understand not being into Hold Your Fire. Hold Your Fire was not a good album. Hold Your Fire. There's some good songs on there. Uh, no, Hold Your Fire is pretty bad. Um, That's a lot of synthesizer-y, dreamy, ethereal crap with yeah. no real driving rhythm no. behind it. I don't think they... After that, they started to come back together with... And then, uh, and then Neil Peart started drumming differently, right? I mean, he well, he's, well, he's always been... You know, throughout, his, throughout his career, he always was looking for something new. Uh, he was incorporating jazz techniques, big band techniques, Asian techniques, African techniques... Uh, he was always looking for new time signatures. Uh, he was constantly looking to up his game, to level up. Yeah. Uh, and I think that was what made him uh, one of the greatest percussionists uh, in rock history. Yeah. Um, My pledge to you is I'm going to listen to Clockwork Angels again very soon. Skip the first it- two tracks. Like, you can skip Caravan and BU2B. Start with the title track, Clockwork Angels, which yeah. I think is just a magnificent piece in its own right. That... The Anarchist. Um, yeah, I mean, these are terrific cuts. Uh, then you've got Headlong Flight, which is just absolutely intense. But The Garden uh, has just this very insightful lyric, which was, uh, you know, the measure of a life is a measure of love and respect. So hard to earn, so easy to burn. And if you think about those words, I mean, it really just sums up life in a nutshell. It's so hard, especially in the arts or any business, any field, any aspect of life, to earn respect over time. And respect really does come down, you know, a measure of a life is a measure of love and respect. And it doesn't take much to burn it all down, to to destroy your personal life, to destroy your professional life. It's very easy, especially in a modern social media age. You can burn your career down like that. 
I keep waiting for it to happen myself, personally. It's uh, Well, you know, I mean, yeah. uh, I think back to, you know, the first time we met in person, you ambushed me on a bus in Astoria. <laughs> I'm I just sitting there. I'm coming back you. from it. I'm coming back from an afternoon matinee movie. I'm listening to like my headphones or something, my earbuds. I'm I'm in my own little zone, and then suddenly there's this big guy standing in front of me. Go, are you're David Mack, aren't you? I'm thinking, oh great, I'm gonna die on a city bus. Wow, that's a fantastic obit. And it turns out it's you, and it was yeah. a relatively benign encounter. No, but I gotta but, tell you, getting recognized on the street—that was the first time that ever happened to me. Really? Outside okay. of a con, like outside of the context right. of where people normally I expect was on to the, meet I, me. I I was on the bus, which you people you do in New York. Mostly it's a subway, but sometimes you take the bus. Well, in I'm, certain areas, especially the outer boroughs, yeah. sometimes a bus makes more. And sense. I'm like, that's the guy. And I'd never seen you at a con. I'm like, I recognize that man from the back of the books that I read. I'm like, that is. David Mack, great man of Star Trek, author of the Vanguard series, the Destiny trilogy, etc., etc. And you knew I lived in Queens. I didn't know you, so I put two together, and I say, "Do I do?" I? And I say, "Of course, I say hello to this guy. Why the hell not? What's 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 what it's negative?" Because come it scared the bejesus out of me. It's why. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I don't remember the the meat of our conversation, but it was brief and friendly. It I was believe. brief and friendly. Yes. Yeah. It was, it, once I once I got over the initial shock of being recognized. Right. Right. No, writers don't get recognized, and writers not, of not Star Trek. Role. Italian fiction really don't get recognized. Very but, infrequently. Right, right. I mean, outside of our, you know, normal uh, captive habitats, <laughs> when we're sitting behind a table with a little name placard, right. you know, other than that, you don't normally expect to get recognized. <laughs> well, it should happen more frequently, Dan. It, it, it has, since then, it, it, it has happened a couple of yeah. times. Well, these, you know, On the street, in a shopping mall, you know, yeah. weird places where I never expected to get recognized. I mean, these books sell. They wouldn't keep hiring you if, if they didn't sell. I mean, they're not, uh, you know, they don't sell uh, Twilight occasionally, books. Yeah, they, I mean, I've made the New York Times list. I've made the USA Today there, list. There you go. Um, of course, you know, I found out the hard way that I don't actually get credit for that. Star Trek gets credit for that. And, uh, well, that you know, that's something else that I wanted to bring up because, and I'm being very frank here, there are there is a lot of new Star Trek books that come out, and there is a history. There are hundreds and hundreds, probably a thousand or more. Well, maybe not a thousand. Let's it's say closer than about a thousand. Let's you say eight hundred. The program has been in operation for about fifty years. Yeah. So you figure at uh, you know the they were sparse at first. There was a period during the 90s when TNG was on that they were oh, publishing two, two paperbacks a month. And at one point they were doing two paperbacks a month and also an ebook every month with the SCE line mm-hmm. back around 2000. Uh, they tapered off, I guess, around the time that DS9 went off the air. But even still, you know, to this day, there's still a new mass market paperback Star Trek novel every month. And I think most months or maybe every other month, they're doing ebook releases, mm-hmm. so there's a still a fair amount of Star Trek fiction. I think at last count, I think somebody had estimated they were between 750 and 800 some odd wow. officially published Star Trek novels. Wow! And then of course there's all the comics as well, which oh, are great. tons. But the 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 things that so sometimes people say to me like, where do I start? Do I go with one of the classics? Do I read? Something from the from the seventies, from the eighties, from now. I, my and, answer is always, well, what show did you like? Well, that that that's that's part of it, and it's interesting because my my answer is, you know, do do you love Bones? Because if you love Bones, there are books just about Bones and go crazy. Sure, pick but up Crucible McCoy. That's that's the one I was thinking about. But then you you go um, you go beyond that once you start reading them, and this is where it comes to the compliment. This is a long winded compliment, so sit back. Your compliments coming your way. Uh, get yeah, get comfy for a second. 
What it ultimately comes down to is sometimes it's not, oh, I love Bones. This is a Bones book. I'm going to love it. It really is who is who is the author. Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it could be a character that you didn't think you cared that much about. But if it's in the hands of a good author, suddenly you love the book. And also, to be fair, uh, not, the, not the ones that are being produced now. They're all brilliant. But back in time, not everyone was a winner. There's some from the... From the 70s and 80s and early 90s that maybe aren't as up to snuff and you you, you decide by by who the authors are and certainly over the years you know if it's if it's got peter david's name on it it's it's one you want to read if it's got greg cox's name on it, it's one mm-hmm. you want to read but more importantly if it's got david mack's name on it oh thank you that's, that's very kind that's one that you you know so when they they do keep hiring me yeah. uh, much to the bafflement <laughs> of uh, a certain segment of fandom i'm sure well at this point i uh, i found out somebody i guess had asked a question they said surely you must be the most prolific star trek author now i'm like no actually not and we did a an actual count yeah not counting comic books or ebooks, just paperback novels yeah i am apparently at the moment the third 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 most prolific. I'm going to guess. Peter David's number one. You got it. Uh, and number two. This should be easy. Is it um, Is it uh, uh, Michael Jan Friedman? It is. Hey, look at that. Peter Clarkson at number one with, yeah. I believe, 43 uh, mass market paperback Star Trek novels. Yeah. And Michael Jan Friedman, last time I checked, had, I believe, 35 maybe wow. 36 and those and i'm right now for star trek i am i'm about to begin writing my star trek discovery novel which for me is number 27 wow yeah that's something i wanted to i know you can't say anything about the, the content of the discovery novel but sure it's i'm still waiting on approval i've been going back and forth the last couple of days with my editor margaret clark and with Kirsten Beyer at the show, who is the show's coordinator for yeah. licensed fiction. We came up with a name for her title at the convention in New York. It was the, we gave her a big, it was on stage. I said, we said something like she is the admiral of interdisciplinary uh, contextual blah, blah, blah. I forget what it was exactly. I'll have yeah, to that, go- that's way too many words. Yeah. She, she's the publishing liaison for Star Trek Discovery. <laughs> she's the liaison between the In show. In addition to being a staff writer yeah, on the staff, show yeah. and, and a key and essential member of the storytelling team, because of her familiarity with the publishing program, yeah. her experience writing novels, it was felt that she was the ideal candidate to serve as the show's point person for coordinating what they're doing on screen mm-hmm. with what we're going to be doing in the books. Yeah, and what IDW will do with the comics also. Yes, she's also yeah. coordinating with IDW. Uh, so I put together an outline. There were some basic parameters given to me by Kirsten, which were given to her by the powers that be. Right. I put together a first draft of my outline, sent it to her and my editor. The two of them coordinated. My editor... Uh, basically filtered down all of Kirsten's notes. They arrived at a unified memo, which my editor sent back to me. I've made a revision of the outline based on that memo. I've sent it back to the editor. If the editor is satisfied, it goes back to Kirsten. If Kirsten is satisfied, it goes to CBS. Once I have the green light from all three of the stakeholders, Mm. show, licensing, editorial, I will be good to go. I'll be greenlit, and I start work on the manuscript Pretty much the moment I get that email saying you are good to go. It's a fascinating process because you basically know what you're going to write in terms of the outline, but Mm -hmm. you still have to, you know, there's still work to be done. I mean, there's still a lot of wiggle room to get creative and... Yeah, I mean, well, there are things you discover at the story development phase. 
uh, at least for me. And then there are things that I find I discover at the manuscript phase. However, when you're working in licensed fiction, you do have to be very detailed in your outlines. Yeah. You have to spell out a lot of the mechanics of how the story is going to work, how the story beats will play out, where the emotional beats are going to be, because all the stakeholders uh, need to know in advance that all of these elements are going to be to their satisfaction. So I have to be very detailed, more so than, say, many authors who work in original fiction sure. would need to be in their own outlines, if they even outline at all. Right. Uh, fortunately for me, because I came from a film and TV background, I went to NYU Film School, and then I wrote for Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Star Trek Voyager in the 90s, I was completely trained in the screenwriting model, which is all structure, structure, structure. And it was all about beat outlines, followed by full prose outlines. From there, you would go to screenplay or teleplay. So I already had this habit ingrained into me by years of academic training and professional training. And I brought that with me when I made the transition into writing for tie-ins. So it was a really easy transition for me yeah. to write these detailed outlines. Uh, to the point now where when I was outlining my original novel, uh, you know, a project that I'm working on for tour, I once again had an insanely detailed outline for this epic contemporary fantasy just because that's how that's I how work do now. Yeah. And I find that for me, I know that some writers say if they make that detailed an outline, it uses up all their excitement sure. for the project yeah. to the point where they now don't want to write the manuscript because for them, discovering the story is why they write. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's a different style. But different for me, the outline, figuring out the story mechanics at the outline stage for me is about building a roadmap to where I want to go narratively so that then the writing of the manuscript is about appreciating the sights and sounds along the way. Mm. That way I've got a roadmap. I never get lost. I don't go off the trail unless I find something really exciting or dramatically promising. But even if I do take a detour, because I have my narrative roadmap already laid out, I usually have a good idea how to get how back to get, on yeah. the path. Mm -hmm. So I don't go too far astray. I can always ask myself, does this serve the narrative structure that I've already established? I know where I'm going. And that frees me up at the manuscript stage to just go and explore the scene and think about how to filter it, who's my point of view, how does the scene play out, what is the line by line, what are the lines of dialogue. I'm not worried about well, am I setting something up that I'm going to write myself into a corner and not be able to get out of this three yeah. scenes down the road? I've already solved that pro problem. So I don't have that anxiety holding yeah. me back anymore. So um, once you've got all your outlines done, when you finally get the, we all the three parties say, we approve this, the, the red stamp, you know, letter rip, starting gun. Yeah. How long will it take you then to write a first draft of, of a manuscript? It depends. Uh, the average for me is about uh, maybe eight to ten weeks on a Star Trek novel of 80,000 words. Wow. Uh, Do you take this, weekends off? or is I that, usually give myself weekends off to yeah. see my wife, you know. You, uh, you work from home, basically? Yeah, I, I, I yeah. work from home. And uh, I try to do a five-day work week. Yeah. I try to produce about 2,000 words per work day, so about 10,000 words a week. In about eight to ten weeks, I'll have a novel of about eighty to a hundred thousand yeah. words. Are there some days when you're just like, "Ugh, I got nothing to say," or no, because you have this outline? I have the outline. I know what I have to say. Uh, for me, those days are really just a challenge of get motivated, get to work, yeah. get it done. Um, 
part of the difference between I think people who say they want to be writers and those who become writers is realizing that at a certain point it is not just an art or a vocation it is a job yeah and you have to be willing to do the job even when you don't feel like doing the job even when you don't feel well even when you're tired you're distracted you're upset your life is going wrong the country is falling to fascism <laughs> everything is going down to hell in a handbasket and it's yeah. all on fire guess what you still have to make your words today well i mean if it is your sole source of income that's a good motivator right there well fortunately my wife is employed so it's not our sole source of income <laughs> right, fair if enough. it were we would be homeless um and have no health insurance so i'm in a pretty good situation where fortunately i, I married well right fair um, but it is a situation where i i made these commitments to have these books written by certain dates yeah to you know, essentially to you know have outlines done by X date, have a manuscript by X date, and I don't think I've ever missed a major deadline by more than five or six business days. Yeah. And if I ever had a sense that I was going to miss even by a day, I always tell the editor, usually a few weeks out, "Hey, I'm slipping a little bit on this. I need to push the date on this a week. Can we do that just for safety?" And uh, I've only rarely had to do that, and sometimes I do that, and then I come in on time anyway. Well, this is, you asked before, why do they keep hiring me? That's, you know, I mean, it's... I try not to make a fuss. I try not to embarrass them in public. <laughs> I hit my deadlines. Yeah. I write clean manuscripts. I know the continuity. I know the tech. I know the characters. Um, and I try to write a good story that, you know, fans want to read. So are you... Um are you commissioned to do just you're doing the first just the first discovery, discovery. Novel. I'm not under I, that's actually the last Star Trek book I'm under contract for at the moment when I turn this book in on or before March 27 that will conclude my current contractual obligation to Star Trek okay and God willing there will be a, an extended contract a new contract more we'll see I yeah. would imagine so. If they want me back aboard to write some more stuff, we'll talk it out. We'll see what they have to say, <laughs> Fair what enough. they want. Uh, cool. Yeah. So, and you know, they're they're shooting, I think, any minute now. They start yep. Shooting. Now that they finally cast the lead, I think they still have to cast a few of the supporting roles. Yeah. We're waiting to find out, like, who's playing the doctor on the Shenzhou and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but most of the major roles are cast. Sonequa Martin-Green is going to be great. I've yeah. loved her work. Uh, I think she is a fantastic fit for the character i've been reading on the page now that i have her in my mind i go oh yeah that's gonna be great yeah. <laughs> now i know you can't say anything but i do love that doug jones is involved i don't know what kind of alien he is i do know you do alien. know but you can't tell me i, I can't tell cool. you that's but cool, uh, you know. but i think he's gonna be again he's a terrific character actor yeah. who brings a great fantasy and sf uh pedigree uh a great cv of work behind him um and I think he's going to bring a lot of depth and a lot of pathos to what is going to be a, a, a pretty good role for him. Uh, before we go, because I know that you have uh, you have deadlines to meet, I don't want to keep you around too long. I have a couple of other notes I want to. Oh, you know, one other thing I wanted to talk to you about. You know, we we you know we've been very supportive of the uh, of uh, you know the, the you know Simon Schuster, CBS, but we know that this is there's a lot of moving parts to. Tie-in fiction, as you just discussed, with the different yeah. heads that need to approve, and this is not—I'm not speaking out of school. This is something that was discussed and known. Uh, you actually wrote a book that was um, ostensibly put on put Shelf. on ice, ash canned, whatever you want to call uh, it. It was uh, 
It was Indefin- indefinitely postponed. It was you were one of four authors. You're talking about the books that were based on the 2009 Star Trek uh, feature film. It was meant to come out after Trek 09 and before Into Darkness. Correct. And you and you were commissioned. Greg I, was, Cox. I basically I was writing one. Greg Cox wrote another. Christopher L. Bennett wrote a third, and the fourth was by Alan Dean Foster. And all um, four books were written. Mm. They were at various stages of editing and production when the decision was made to indefinitely postpone their release. And uh, how does that make you feel? Well, I'm obviously a little disappointed or very disappointed. I thought that I had done a pretty good job of capturing the unique flavor and style of J.J. Abrams' version of Star Trek. Uh, in particular, using the elements of continuity from the first movie to tell a story that could only be told within that continuity. And uh, I think that fans who had enjoyed that movie would really have enjoyed my book. And I'm just sad that they don't, uh, that they're not likely to get a chance to, to read it. I mean, I got paid in full for my work, as I believe all the other authors did. Simon and Schuster basically realized it was not our fault none of us failed to meet our obligations all of us completed our contractual obligations on our respective projects so we were all paid in full to the best of my knowledge um so i I have absolutely no professional beef on that front uh the contract says explicitly you know there's no guarantee of publication sure sure um so my only regret is that i think fans who enjoyed the movie would really have enjoyed my book, yeah. Uh, and I'm just a, I'm just bummed that they're not likely to get a chance to read it, at least not anytime soon. The, when when we get to see Jerry Lewis's the the day the clown cried, we can also read these books. So like all the things you can't <laughs> see, you know. George Lucas allegedly has these art films he's been making and only shows to his friends. We'll see them that day, also. You know, maybe. All- I mean, I think at this point, uh, if I were to think about the continuity that was later established in Into Darkness and beyond, are, there would probably be a number of continuity errors now mm. between the books and the feature films. And I think that that was a big part of the reason why the books were put on hiatus, why they were postponed, is that uh, there was just going to be no chance really to coordinate their continuity with those of the movies. And I feel like it was important to a lot of the stakeholders that there not be this perception of narrative discontinuity. Um, And I think that while it might theoretically be possible with some minor revisions to maybe rework mine to make it track with continuity uh, without impairing the story too much, again, there just really isn't much uh, commercial will for that at the moment. Yeah, it's uh, well, you know, it's, there's a lot of moving parts to these things. There's a lot so. of issues. I'm yeah. not privy to all of them. I don't yeah. know all of the factors that maybe went into the decision to uh, to pull the books. Um, but really, my only regret can be that I thought I wrote a book that fans of the movie would have dug, and I'm just sad they don't get to read it. I mean, yeah. it's not my property, so I I had a couple say, "Well, can you just put it up online, or whatever?" And I'm like. Well, no, because yeah. I don't own it. It's yeah. a work for hire. The moment I set words to paper while I'm working under contract, those words belong to my employer. Yeah. The finished manuscript is the property of Star Trek and CBS, and it is not mine to give away. You could maybe speak them. You could go to a park and speak them out loud. That would that would really be pushing my <laughs> luck, I think. 
I don't think I'm going to do that. I don't, I'm not suggesting I don't think you I'm going to do that. Fair enough. You know, you mentioned earlier that your your favorite characters uh, were Cervantes, Quinn, and Tuprin. Your favorites to write mm-hmm. uh, of your own. Who are your favorite characters to write that were that are established Star Trek characters, not not your own creation? I, uh, I've always enjoyed writing uh, Data. I liked writing Worf. Mm. Had a lot of fun with those guys. On the DS9 side, obviously, I seem to have developed a strong affinity for writing Bashir. I just Ooh. seem to relate to him, which is why at this point I've got a whole Julian Bashir super spy novel arc, starting with Zero Sum Game, uh, and then continuing through A Ceremony of Losses, um, then he appears in something else, and now there's the Section 31 books, Disavowed, and coming in March is Section 31 Control, which I'm currently thinking of as the end of my Julian Bashir super spy oh. novel arc. All right, so we're putting that's the that. big conclusion. Um, and which I don't want to say ones you, you you don't like writing, but the the ones that you, the character of pre-established Star Trek that you find the most difficult to write for. I don't know that it's so much a difficulty as just a matter of not feeling a sense of inspiration or connection with them. Uh, I've never really felt much of a connection with Troy, although I did try to get into her head uh, with an emotionally meaningful story in uh, the Destiny trilogy. Odo has always been a bit of a mystery to me in Mm. terms of how to write him. Uh, While I had fun writing some stuff with him in spec scripts when I uh, was pitching to TV, on the novel side, his character post-finale just went in a direction that... uh, I just didn't feel comfortable. He goes writing back it. to the link. Yeah, I went back to the link. Went to the but bad then, guys. Well, yeah, but then there were uh, there was a whole post finale exploration post that uh, of him and another character and David R. George did some work with that and Marco had a whole vision for where that was going and then he got laid off in the 2008 economic meltdown and uh, all those plans basically got flushed and went up in flames and yada 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 they went in the bucket they, went, they all they, went in the bucket they went in odo's bucket they went into odo's bucket cool well that would be a name for a podcast <laughs> welcome to odo's bucket <laughs> all right cool so you have the new section 31 book which will be out in stores and on amazon kindles and all that in march you say yeah march 28 i believe is the uh street date for that and the first Discovery book is allegedly Tentative, tentatively scheduled to come out around the time of the show's premiere. So that's we're what talking, I'm, that's what I'm being told. We're told May, so roughly May, May. end if, of May would be my May. best guess. Awesome. And then I have a Titan novel that I've already finished writing. That's now in production. That is scheduled for sometime around the end of the year. Oh, okay. End of 2017. And then in early 2018, February 2018, will be the premiere of my new original series, Dark Arts, coming from Tor Books. Did you mean this was the modern day fantasy? Contemporary thing? fantasy. Okay. Uh, book one is set during World War II. Mm. Basic, you know, like if you were going to look for the elevator pitch, it's Captain America meets Lev Grossman's The Magicians. Awesome. Uh, and the idea is you basically, you know, you had Hitler with black magicians working for the Axis. Uh, so the Allies, Churchill, decide that they need magicians working for them. So our main character, a young man, an American studying at Oxford, is recruited into a top secret magical warfare program known as the Midnight Front. Sounds awesome. And the Midnight Front is the title of book one. Uh, and as soon as I finish writing the Discovery novel, I am going to be starting work on the second book in that series. Mm. The second book is titled The Iron Codex, and that book is set in 1953. It's a Cold War espionage thriller, again, with 
black magicians. Same characters? Same or, characters. But uh, a little older. Because, well, because Unless of they're bi- traveling through time. Well, no, because of black magic, uh, you slow the aging process. Oh. I'm using essentially one of the conceits for the dark art series. I'm using Renaissance magic on the assumption that it works the way it says it does in the old grimoires, like the... Uh, you know, the Lemmigeton, uh, the Clavicula Salomonis Regis, et cetera, et cetera, so that you make all magic is predicated on the summoning and control of demons, and you make these packs, uh, you know, you sell your soul, et cetera, and in return you get 700 years of life, mm. uh, you know, and certain immunities and whatever, and then you, I added a little twist uh, to it that fans will see when they read the book as to make it a little more cinematic. Mm. Uh, but I basically predicated it on this very classical view, this Renaissance era view of black magic. And uh, essentially I'm using black magic as sort of this avenue for secret history. And I'm going through 20th century geopolitics. Uh, And at its heart, the subtext of the whole series, assuming it goes beyond the first three books and is able to continue, is to go through various periods of 20th century history and track the rise of fascism in the West oh. to, to see how we went from fighting fascism in World War II to voting for fascism in 2016. <laughs> well, hopefully the the last book in the series will be uh, the 2020 reversal. We'll of see. That. We'll see. I mean, by you know, by 2020, I'll be lucky if the third book is out. Uh, by which point, we'll only be up to 1963, the Kennedy assassination. Okay. <laughs> um, well, my, my, the other the other fun thing about the Dark Art series is that I'm also envisioning it as a series where each book, by jumping into a different era of history with a different set of priorities, is a different style of book. The first book is a World War II war epic. Mm. The second book is a Cold War espionage thriller. The third book will be a conspiracy piece. Right. And then if the series continues to sell and Tor wants to continue it... Mm-hmm. Book four would either be Summer of Love or early 1970s, and that would probably be like a crime thriller with the mob and, you know, stuff like that, dirty underground type stuff. Uh, 80s would be a corporate, uh, you know, corporate heist book uh, type of thing. Well, I think the 80s should be corporate heist, but set in like early uh, computer programmers, and you might be able to have a cameo of three gentlemen from Toronto that you're fu- you're very fond of. You never know. Could maybe show up. Well, one of my hopes in- is that you know if I can do book four and set it in the seventies, I wanted to have a scene where we catch up with the main character at a Led Zeppelin show where he's whacked out on heroin, <laughs> you know, and he's at the the show that's being taped for uh, you know. Uh, Song remains the same. Yeah, awesome. That would have be- him have him yeah. listening to you know. Uh, the, the drum solo. Moby Dick. Yeah, Moby Dick. Moby Dick! 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 That is an almost Rush-esque riff. Well, yeah. I mean, well, Rush and Led Zeppelin were contemporaries yeah. to a certain, you know, right through the 70s. Do you consider Rush to be more... See, because Rush gets lumped in with prog rock a lot. and, and But they came out of a blues rock uh, tradition right. originally. I mean, they were inspired by, uh, you know... Mr. Soul and uh, Cream, yeah. uh, Yardbirds. I mean, they came out of a, a strong blues tradition. They yeah. were a bar band before they were a prog rock band. And, and, and like bands like Yes and Emerson, Lincoln Palmer and, and even Jethro Tull and Renaissance. And I feel like they're like Rush is a little bit. There's just like something a little different that separates them from those other ones, you know? I agree. I, I think that Rush is sui generis. I think that yeah. prog rock was simply the most convenient label that. Uh, 
you know, Rolling Stone had to paste on them to explain why it wasn't going to cover them for right. so many decades. But I think that really at heart, uh, Rush is just its own thing. They've always been musical pioneers. They've changed their style every couple of albums. A fun thing, if you look at the overall discography of Rush, you find that their evolutions of style tend to occur in two album bursts. So that the first album, the eponymous Rush, mm -hmm. and Fly By Night, thematically, structurally, sonically, are very similar albums. But Fly By Night is a little more refined, a little more polished, better studio time, a little more money behind it. But you can feel like it's the same sonic ideas that are just being worked out and refined from album one. But then comes third album, Caress of Steel, the much yeah. maligned Caress of Steel, which led to the Down the Tubes tour, as the band puts it, <laughs> where they thought their careers were over. There are a couple of good songs on Caress of Steel. Oh, hey, I think I'm going bald. <laughs> I love that song. <laughs> a what one. a great song. And but the but, but I, is I'm in that, the right? I'm in the vast minority. Yeah. I, I love the Fountain of Lamneth. Yeah. Uh, and I don't care who knows it. But <laughs> The thing is, that was their first foray into the idea of the concept album. Sure. So they have the concept side, Fountain of Lamneth, and then you have the B-side with the singles and other tracks. Mm -hmm. And then, what is the second pair in that discography? It's 2112. Right. Again, another concept album, A-side, full concept album side, B-side, individual tracks. Sure. But more ambitious, more polished, more refined, but also a, really just a great distillation of everything that the band yeah. realized. And that great they compositions, were, too. I mean, great composition. Very great orchestration, terrific yeah. arrangements, yeah. Uh, really. But again, what you see is that they're taking the ideas that were being worked on in Caress of Steel, oh. and the ideas evolve into a more refined form at 2112. Now you have a live album. Now jump. Now you've got Farewell to Kings. We're not doing a concept album anymore. I Hemispheres comes next. Farewell Kings oh. was next. All right. I, Farewell I, I, to I, Kings was the next studio album, yeah. and it preceded Hemispheres. Now, Hemispheres, again, is semi-concept album. You have another concept side, which they didn't do on Farewell to Kings. Yeah. But this is where they start working in more synthesizers, yeah. uh, a little bit more of an electronic sound. Those two albums, sonically, have a lot in common. They're very much a brother-sister pair of albums. Mm. And then, of course, you jump forward, and what's your next in progression? Permanent Waves. Right. Permanent Waves and Moving Pictures Again, I, I sort of love Permanent Waves just a little more than Moving Pictures, which is weird because Moving Pictures is their big, crowd-pleasing hit, yeah. Tom Sawyer, etc. But there's a purity, there's a sonic cleanliness, uh, sort of a, just a, an austerity of sound, if you will, to Permanent Waves. But Permanent Waves and Moving Pictures, again, function like a sonic pair. Yeah. They have a lot of stylistic similarity, uh, the length of the different tracks of songs, the shying away from the concept album but having a couple of longer tracks, Natural Science versus, uh, say, The Camera Eye. Yeah. Then, Evolution Time, after another live album, now Evolution into the strong synthesizer sound of Signals, which then is refined into Grace Under Pressure. Right. After this, you have Power Windows. Which I love, by the way. Power Windows Power is a great album. It's a great album. marathon. It's like one of their best songs. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, territories. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, Big Money. Yeah. Big, <laughs> big Money Got No Soul, man. But the, the, that, that was almost um, MTV pop a little bit parallel. Almost. Yeah. yeah a little but new wave. A little bit of a little But basically, wave. Yeah, yeah, you see this as you go through that there's always this sort of duality that, you know, there's always this pair of albums. And if you look at them each as a duology, 
new idea, new break, you know, new new attempt at a style renovation, a style revolution, and then refinement of idea is the next step. Yeah. And then it's always, and let's reinvent again. Yeah. And it happens in two album bursts all through their career. Now, is, with a co- is this a, by design? I, don't know, or I don't know that it was by design. I think it's just it's a function of the passage of time and the sense of they were always on the lookout for new sounds, new ideas, new tempos, new time signatures. Yeah. Uh, and I think that they were just constantly trying to push themselves to do something that they hadn't done before because they didn't want to bore themselves yeah. doing the same album over and over again uh, the way that some bands do. <coughs> Rolling Stones. Um, so they uh, forced themselves to reinvent and do something that's just stylistically different, sonically different, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that you see these, again, these pairings come through. Um, and I think it continued right up through you know Vapor Trails and Snakes and Arrows. And then you have that you know, sort of last studio album, uh, Clockwork Angels, where if you listen to it, there are little sonic callbacks through the entirety of Clockwork Angels to the entire span of their career that preceded it. So they knew that was going to be their last album. I have a feeling that even if they weren't conscious of it, I feel like on a subconscious level, uh, they knew that it might very well be the farewell album. It, It plays like a farewell album, particularly, uh, the garden. If you listen to the garden, the finality of it, the fact that it represents, you know, the cultivation, you know, the, the culmination of a life's journey and a life's wisdom distilled down to a single track. I mean, the first time I listened to that track, I got misty eyed because I had a feeling I'm like, I think this is it. I think this is I think this is a farewell album. Yeah. How I many think, times have you seen them live? Uh, I've been to at least one show on every tour since Signals in 1982. Wow. So, I pro- so I've probably seen them. 20 to 30 times which for you know among the true diehard rush fanatics is nothing sure sure but uh that was as much as i could afford i didn't have the budget or the luxury of following the band around for multiple shows on every tour much as i would have loved to have done so it just wasn't in the cards but i did make sure that i I saw them for the first time on the signals tour uh when i was about 13 12 13 and at that point it just sort of the band became my religion and i'd never missed a tour i made sure that i caught at least one show on every tour since then so anytime they went on tour i made at least one show but touring with them they're not a band like like uh, grateful dead or fish where they change the set every night they pretty much locked it in they pretty much locked it in so if you went to like five shows on the same tour you saw the same show every single time with only maybe the most minor variations they started getting a little more whimsical and loosening up a little bit with some of the improvisations in later years i remember that uh from what i had heard from other fans there was uh i think it was was it the time machine tour it was either Time Machine or Vapor Trails. They had La Viola Estrangiato was part of their closing medley. Mm. And every night there would be a different improvisation by Alex, in, like a spoken word improvisation. <laughs> and whatever struck his fancy, whatever was on his mind, yeah. if he'd had a dream the previous night, if there was just something he wanted to say, um, he would just go off on like a weird little tangent. Uh, and I think you know the the i forget he was talking in something very new york like when i saw them do that in new york there was something very new york about it he was talking about wandering through central park and this and that and the other thing it was just the strangest little yeah. diatribe that went on for like three four minutes but then there's a great bit uh from the version they recorded for the live album i think maybe it was was it the 
snakes and arrows tour? I have to look it up. But there's a bit where he's making fun of Getty, who is playing like uh, Girl from Ipanema, and uh, he says, you know, making all these weird. These are the voices in my head. Singing is so easy. You know, <laughs> that's jazz. Jazz is weird. Because <laughs> he's, he's a funny guy. He's a weird guy. He's yeah. a weird guy. He's a funny guy. I only got to, the chance to meet him and Getty one time. Uh, well, I, I met them a couple of times doing meet and greets, but the one time I consider having met them was getting to hang out backstage for about an hour post-show. Oh, wow. Uh, on the Vapor Trails tour, I believe, uh, in... Was it Vapor Trails? No, it would have been Snakes and Arrows, 2007. Uh, hanging out at the PNC Bank Art Center uh, with Getty and Alex and you know, basically their little entourage team, whatever. That was pretty cool. And yeah. I didn't get to meet Neil. but He doesn't I, like to talk to fans. He He's doesn't like to meet fans. Man. He doesn't yeah. like to meet strangers, and I certainly can't begrudge him that. You're not going to talk to him on a bus and say, hey, I recognize you. No, no. He's, but uh, I was able to bring an autograph book for him because I had named a character in his honor in a couple of my Star Trek novels. And I gave copies to Getty. Getty said he would make sure that they got to Neil. And about you know a couple months later... I got an email from Neil. No joke. It really? was very, very short, polite. Yeah. You know, uh, he, you know, he said something to the effect of, you know, it's uh, very strange to see a book with a character, you know, with my name in it. I don't see that very often. Uh, thank you for the honor, whatever. And I wrote back, uh, the honor was mine. You know, yeah. if I ever get the chance, it would be great to, you know, buy you a drink and you know share some scotch with you. And that's the extent of it. I, yeah. Even though I technically have his email address, I've never been presumptuous enough to think that I had any right to use it One ever day again. you will. One day you're just going to like come up with a brilliant insight into... Uh, I keep hoping that I will do something that he will read, <laughs> that he will like enough, that he'll drop me another email to say, I read that. That didn't suck. Yeah. Nice job. <laughs> and I'll write back, thanks. That'd be great. I'd like to buy you a drink. And then I'll not hear from him again for another 20 years. Well, you know... Um, <laughs> You know, for, I, I would say most Star Trek fans are either Rush fans already or they, they should and they just haven't been exposed. So I feel perfectly fine devoting this much time talking about Rush. La Villa Strangiato, by the way, which you mentioned earlier, if for those uh, listening who maybe haven't heard it, go to Spotify. It is this epic, I don't know, eight and a half minute instrumental track that's impossible to play and it nearly broke the band when they tried to record it all in one take. And it's, it's a uh, great example of their virtuosity it's, as it's, musicians. It's great. It's better than YYZ, I say. That's YYZ. A, oh, that's right. They're Canadian, Cana- they're Canadian yeah, remember. YYZ. Uh, you know, it took, me, it took me being a fan of Rush 15 years before I realized why YYZ is called YYZ. It's the airport code for Toronto yeah. International. I I discovered that the first time I flew to Toronto. And yeah. I did, did, you, did you know that the percussion yeah. on the cymbals is the Morse code for that YYZ? That I knew. That I just assumed. And it's I, used for the airport uh, locator signal. Yeah. So the the do 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 That's Morse for for YYZ. Do 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 do. That's YYZ. Got that. But I'm on the plane going to Toronto for the first time in my life. And I'm looking at my ticket. It says why, why and it was like, like ding. My head was like, and like I was alone, so I couldn't say anything to anybody. But I'm like, oh my god, I get this. I get this now. Fifteen years later, this is so exciting. Um, all right, cool. Well, listen. Um, Shokoth, his eyes uncovered. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, listen. Thanks so much for for coming by. This was a lot of fun. If if uh, if you're listening. 
and you haven't read some of uh, David's books, uh, you can. Also, the Legacies trilogy. We had Dayton Ward on mm-hmm. a few uh, months ago, so we, we spoke about that. Yeah, I, the 50th uh, anniversary uh, thing, which I was part of. You were part of. And I, I just finished... Greg Cox was first. Yeah, Captain to Captain, I, Mine I, is Best Defense, book two. And then Purgatory's Key is book three. I haven't read book three yet, so I'm still stuck on the planet with all of them. But well, uh, hopefully, uh, you know, I'll be able to come back in March or April, and we can talk about uh, Section Thirty One Control and the whole Julian Bashir super spy novel arc and uh, how all that came about. And that'll be fun. That yep. should, we should definitely do that. It'll be um, rife with spoilers, and then maybe in May we'll. <laughs> Talk about discovery. Talk about discovery. Because once people have actually had a chance to see the the first two episodes and read the book, I'll actually be able to discuss the content of the book. I know. I know. So it's exciting. Uh, It's going to be great. Uh, I have nothing but positive thoughts, and uh, we're all looking forward to it. So once again, thanks. And people can find you on the internet. You're on Twitter at what is your Twitter handle? David Allen A L A N Mac. All one word. All one word. David A L A N. Mac, M-A-C-K. That's the best way to contact you via That's the, the easiest internet. way to find me on Twitter, yeah. and you can also find me on the web at davidmac.pro. davidmac.pro. And there's links to my social media and stuff off the front page and off the uh, press page and yada, yada, yada. All that good stuff. So I am going to send you off with, I'm going to, Captain Picard is going to say... Make it so. And we are going to see you next time. Hasta la vista, baby. <laughs> awesome. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.